So with us today in the studio, we have Dr. Jan Pietres Bosman, and the Director at the Center for Learning Technologies at Stellenbosch University. Welcome, Jan Pietres. Thank you so much. Lovely to be with you. Thank you. It's lovely to have you. So um, yeah, today we're going to chat a little bit more about artificial intelligence and assessment. And um, yeah, maybe just to lead us into that, Jan Pietres, you are currently busy with your second PhD. <laughs> well, that, that takes is, some courage. <laughs> that is true. There's a reason for it, though, and one that's connected to our theme, maybe loosely, but maybe also specifically. As when I started the PhD, I really wanted to study AI in higher education. And at our Center for Learning Technologies, I had kind of the feeling that we are not onto this and we should be. And this was two years ago. Um, so I guess it. You know, it kind of played out nicely because I'm a little bit ahead <laughs> of myself or what's happening around us in a way. Um, and I've thought about it a bit. Also at the center, we have a focus in one of our other colleagues. We, we do have a kind of a focus on, you know, what we call um, synchronous or automation type things, which really is how AI systems and especially in teaching and learning um, you know, how it works. Uh, so we, we have a bit of a running start. <laughs> but I think what we then experienced um, end of last year, um, you know, did up the game a bit. But so that is uh, one of the reasons I'm doing my PhD. Yeah, would you like to share um, what your PhD is about? Yes, certainly. Um, it's about academic advising with technology, artificial intelligence towards student success. And, you know, it's not the field that I'm working in, which is teaching, learning, assessment, but they are related. And the issue of academic advising is, is gaining a lot of ground in South Africa, as well as Salamash University. And I think it's uh, important to have that focus. Um, and I chose that because that's really one of the few real practices that I could find that is already has artificial intelligence or machine learning systems undergirding, you know, the practice. And so that seemed uh, useful and I have a joint degree or a joint, you know, student as it were experience from Kai Leuven in Belgium as well as Stellenbosch University and they have a very well established practice of academic advising also with these kinds of technologies so that's why um, I decided to do that. Mm. Amazing. Um, so I think, well, as, um, as an advisor at the Center for Learning Technologies, um, You've uh, had been incorporating digital technology in your teaching, learning and assessment um, for many years now as an advisor. And um, to some extent, ChatGPT has created a big hype or panic among some academics or lecturers. And um, could you maybe share your take on all of this? Um, I'm thinking now, maybe just share something about what is ChatGPT? I don't know, Hanley, if you want to just jump in here. <laughs> you, you, give, yeah. You're asking me to share on ChatGPT <laughs> while we've got the artificial intelligence <laughs> experts sitting around the table. But yeah, um, Jan Pietris, please fill in. Um, ChatGPT, most of you would know it by now, is um, the artificial intelligence tool that um, that alerted many of us to the um, existence of artificial intelligence, something that's been around a lot longer than ChatGPT. But it's just been the most accessible to the normal human being. It really is a very smart chatbot. People sometimes compare it to Google. It's much more than that, I think. 
um, an intelligent, intelligent chatbot trained on massive data sets running up to 2021. And um, as with artificial intelligence, it learned and formed some of its own emergent properties, learned um, how to behave and how to respond. It's, I think um, a lot of effort went into ensuring that it does, as far as possible, does not give harmful responses, but it can advance on things. And um, a big concern, maybe that's the place to, to halt here for a moment in higher education when ChatGPT came onto the scene is, what's happening with our summative assessments, especially uninvigilated summative assessments. So these could be the essays. Lots of questions from the writing intensive um, environments such as arts and social sciences. Um, take home tasks such as multiple choice questions um, as part of, of ongoing uh, formative slash summative assessment in the sciences as well. We got people very quickly saying that this thing can answer a lot of these questions as well as most students would. Um, I don't know, Jan Pietris, please add in there and then. Yes, I think that that's really good summary. Um, I was involved in a, in a workshop uh, from the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences. So I had quite an intimate experience of how, um, you know, academic teachers relate to this uh, conundrum, as it were. Um, I must say, though, that at the workshop, and the, these were only representatives from that faculty, um, it was quite a interesting experience to see how how people think about that and I think that's kind of the things that we'll discuss now is why people react as they react um, so on one hand you know I got the message uh, there's panic you know and we must just hold this workshop and give people now the answer the recipe what are we going to do Monday you know when the classes start and I went there and did my presentation more generalized um, because to me, this is really my bottom line is if we take a longer view and, and, and step away from actually what is happening with this technology that is now also incorporated as an educational technology tool, um, you know, how we should think about it when we look broader. Although every now and then I then remind myself that we might actually be, <laughs> be in more trouble than we, than we mm -hmm. think. So um, on one hand, one could uh, use that my, maybe as a coping mechanism. Um, and and the, the jury is still out, I think, personally. Uh, so for the moment, I think uh, thinking about it in, the, in, in, in bigger, longer terms, and I'm, I'll give some examples soon, I know how to think of it. Anyway, so then I was surprised when we broke into groups um, and I expecting the panic to now erupt, you know, around the tables. But in our group and, and the feedback from the other groups, it was actually totally the opposite. It was quite interesting. Um, the people there were excited. They were not, they were not scared. Um, and in fact, obviously they were worried, like on a practical side of things and, and how to do it. But many of them immediately could come up with, with, with alternative ways that they can assess. And then people came out of the woodwork who's been doing it anyway the last two years, from like in drama, the most amazing things that they, are, that they are doing that's already generative AI, you know, proof. Um, and others, you know, from history, which sounds typically like something <laughs> that you should safeguard, you know, that that colleague was saying no absolutely i can f immediately find how to incorporate it and then people from um, security systems for example they could incorporate it and critical studies you know feminist gender type focus areas everybody could when thinking about it 
could find a way of you know wrapping them their, their, their minds around it um, and so just to add to that maybe we should just tell the, the audience as well that it's we're not just talking about it about chatbots but possibly about generative AI which is what this whole thing has become known as uh, which would also include generating visuals um, code text and that kind of thing so, Jan Piedris, why generative AI? Why are we calling it generative AI? What, what, how is that different to other AI for our audience? So, I think, like you said, for the first time, there's now the breakthrough, I think, is that there are now tools that you don't need to be an expert or a computer scientist or a programmer to access the power of the tools. Like like Andy said, they were available, but, um, you know, kind of invisible. So, and I think... This was obviously a brilliant marketing ploy of OpenAI, which created ChatGPT, which is now GPT-4, um, to, to tell the world about these things and show them that now you, you don't have to program to be a programmer. <laughs> you are programming by talking and by using plain human language. That is the big, I think, innovation here. And so, um, and then obviously the, the, the size of the models um, and how quickly it now is improving even over the last six months, incredible improvements in how good in inverted commas it is in, in, in what it does. And so it's generative. Um, I think that comes from the name and I don't want to become technical, but it basically um, comes up with something that looks as if it hasn't existed before. So it's not a search engine that just returns what it found verbatim. It actually combines words and ideas and thoughts that's unexpected often. Um, and I think that that's the big game changer. Also where the still, you know, unanswered questions lie. What to do with these things when they um, lie or um, hallucinate as they say, and things like that. And on the visual side, um, it's also becoming better and better. Up until now, uh, human human gestalt or whatever they found it very difficult to um you know to represent that but even that is now by the day you know growing growing more more um, proficient in, in creating that so it's about generating text and visuals at this stage but also then code and things like that so maybe a, a quick clarification before we um I can see you've got a question just waiting to be asked. So the, the term that's starting to be used in that area, you hallucinate. Um, ChatGPT, um, a beautiful description I heard, sometimes come up with very eloquent rubbish. So <laughs> it will give you something that looks beautiful, mm -hmm. but um, I tested it recently on a theory that I'm familiar with, but that isn't so common. Um, and it gave me very eloquent rubbish. Mm -hmm. So that, if we talk about hallucinating, that's what it is. So um, some people say it can't lie because lie requires intent. Yes. But it's when it gives us nonsense. And it's almost like there are two perspectives, if I can call it like that, almost on the one side from the lecturers um, that you've mentioned who initially experienced a bit of panic, basically, or but then coming to a state of familiarity when they realize or just think about step back a bit and realize, oh, wow, but it's it's actually been around the block a bit. Um, but then on the other side, um, I think from the student perspective as well, almost a sense of um, <laughs> if I was a student, I would have probably seen myself in that if if I were just to say, for instance, in an assessment, being asked to just f give back information then it sort of makes it easier to just, you know, regurgitate that. 
or um, yeah, if uh, if if that's the case. So, I think it in that sense it it also asks of us as lecturers to rethink the way that we assess because I mean AI is here to stay, right? So it's not going to go away. If I can pitch in there, I just uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but last night or this morning, the new Educause Horizon report came out which is one of the, you know, like most authoritative um, kind of reports on new technologies in education. And then first of all, you know, look, oh, generative AI, there's a chapter on that, or just a few pages. And it's very interesting. They, they kind of, I think, managed to, to capture, you know, what you're saying. So they talk about um, kind of the, the concerns and controversy and the fears and the potential. And it's, it's, it's kind of those two, those two sides of things. And what they basically say is, and if I can um, can quote, it says, um, you know, on the one hand, the fears are academic integrity and cheating. I mean, let, let's be honest, that is the one. But then also the potential, which they describe as reimagined assessment, leading to more meaningful and effective educational experiences, um, which I think is a very good summary. And then they include two more things that I think is important. The one is, the industry, inverted commas perspective, so where students are going to end up with working or serving or whatever, the the use of AI tools in, in almost all industries is now, now going to become, you know, almost a given and it, it is radical. So it's almost crazy to think that we would not teach students about what it is, how it works and incorporate it into our um, educational um, practices in preparation of them going into that world. And then the last thing is they need to know about it because they need to be informed around the ethical um, um, and the limitations also of, of AI for the same reasons. Being critical citizens, going out in the world, making a difference. We, we need, we all need to understand how it works or how it doesn't work because nobody <laughs> apparently knows exactly how it works. Um, and know the ethical implications of it. I'm, I'm quite strong in it, so I'm just to give my some some of my last words now. Um, you know, we must always stay critical. I think it's very critical and skeptical as well. The other day, I read a powerful blog piece of James Bridle, who wrote this book, uh, The New Dark Age, and he quite bluntly states that he thinks these generative AI systems are stupid, um, and he says it with with a certain uh, for a certain reason, not that he says it's not useful, etc., etc., but I think we must realize that as people say that these systems that we have now are basically uh, systems of billionaires wanting to make more profit and using this this way of incorporating millions and billions of people even in their market research. And so we must see the tools for what they are as well. I mean, some have even gone so far as to call them um, new colonization, digital colonization of the whole of the human knowledge archive, which in a way is what it is. So if you start seeing that and being careful to not fall hook, line and sinker, I think that is that is that careful balance. It's there, it's gonna be used and let's see how we can use it or not use it if we choose to. On the other hand, you know, I think it's critical that we tell ourselves and students, you know, in terms of what the dangers are and actually what it implies. Um, and I've got some some ideas we can share later as well. But yeah, mm, yeah. Maybe linking on to that, so when you spoke about opportunities, so what you've come across, um, 
if you can share maybe to um, you know to our listeners and perhaps lecturers out there as well um, in the one hand on the one hand being critical of it and and knowing the you know all those those things that that could invoke more fear but then what opportunities could there be or mm. perhaps you know what what would you say how how should a lecturer approach this to really um, capitalize <laughs> for lack of a better <laughs> word um, sure. on the opportunities that that it could bring I've got a long list, <laughs> so we can publish that afterwards. Um, I thought of a few things, and I'll just mm. mention them shortly because I know I, I often mm. talk a bit. Um, um, so I think useful is to think again, let's dust off the graduate attributes. Um, it's always been difficult to assess them, although they're critical. And the new ones that are coming out, at least at our university, might include, so I'm, I'm not giving away anything, might include something that has to do with the digital knower as an attribute. And I think there's a lot of value in um, developing that and making that part of why we assess. Not just how we assess, but why we assess towards what we assess. Um, and then many other things, in a way, fall into place because we are guided by our vision, not by the tool that's now new and, uh, you know, threatening us with academic integrity. I've mentioned the Horizon report, which talks about look at industry, what your industry, and that could mean anything for which we prepare students for, even just society in general, what that asks of students, what new knowledge, skills, and attitudes, and try and link onto that. That's a good driver for, for assessment and teaching, learning, and assessment, of course. The other thing I thought is people are saying orals, orals, orals. And firstly, I think, yes, I think it's a great idea. Um, at this workshop, it was shared um, a lecturer that actually does orals and everybody says, oh, we can't do orals with 400 students. It's, it's not true. I'm doing orals and I think he mentioned two or 300 students. And he thinks it takes just as much time or even shorter than if he were to mark two, 300, you know, cookie cutter <laughs> essays. And so, you know, thinking differently, orals. And the other thing I thought was, I mean, there's this, this explosion maybe not explosion, but there's a, a new idea of the make of making the maker space, um, productive pedagogies, that kind of thing that I think is underdeveloped as, a, as an assessment technique. And so think physical, really try and think physical because obviously there, I mean, there are AI systems that can help there, but I mean, it's not obvious. Um, so we have to think creatively. I think we have to do dismantle the rusty and dusty ideas of what it means to assess especially in higher education. You know, the other day, and this is now difficult not to <laughs> trace who I'm referring to, but let's say I, there was an application for some kind of funding from a kind of department that dabbles in these things, That's and then the program was about new ways of using you know, technology and stuff. And I'm reading, and they, they're saying, how, how, how are we going to assess? Like quizzes and, and an essay. And I'm thinking, how is it possible? How is it possible you should apply just your own, what you know from your own, you know, field to the assessment? Like, don't do a quiz, like have, have the students make a bot or, you know, whatever it might be. And then uh, just to mention um, El Eliana Elkuri from Atabasca University. Um, she's become kind of like a... Um, poster person for <laughs> what's called alternative assessment and in a the presentation I was in in actually could in very short time mention 21 things you can do uh, improve the output of the bot 
evaluate logical consistency, uh, perform fact-checking, debate. Students get entry points, get points in the debate. And that's just to mention four. Um, and so maybe my question there is, there's enough examples now, there's enough evidence, there's enough you know, insight into what we what we can do differently. So my question is, why don't people just do it? That that that's an interesting question. Why? And I think it's linked to deeper conceptualizations of what it means to be a university teacher, what teaching is, what learning is, how teaching learning assessment integrates. Um, it's that old adage of um, you know you teach as you, the way you think people learn. And if we now mix in the technology, I would say it makes it even more difficult because recently I've become more aware of what's called a relational ontology. It's, um, it's a way of thinking about the world and our closeness or not to the material things, which would include everything we wear and use and stuff. But it would also include how we think of technologies for education. And these things are not separated. It comes deep from our worldviews. And so in the start, I said people react usually in two, more or less two ways. Some people you know, see the whites in their eyes um, because they are fearful of the technology because it's, I think, um, they think representationally it's us against the technology. Whereas others, and this is not proven, this is just a gut feel, others who are more comfortable thinking, oh, yeah, how can we, how can we use it? How can we adapt? Have already already have a, another way of thinking about teaching and learning and what it means to be at university and teaching in the space and now using the technologies because they see the technology as as a partner in a way, uh, as part of the assemblage, that's <laughs> a very technical term of, of how things happen as you know, as, as we do, as we practice, as we teach, as we learn, as we assess, etc. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised and, you know, this is part of a long history of, and I'm very interested in this, um, how technologies over the years, over the millennia and the centuries have influenced uh, teaching and learning. And uh, I'm not going to bore you with uh, a quote that I had from, from um, Baudelaire, <laughs> Charles Baudelaire, uh, you know, the famous artist who, who decried when, um, when photography, photography was introduced, he said of the new meaning, um, it will become the refuge of every would-be partner, every pa uh, painter too ill-endowed or too lazy to complete his studies <laughs> and, and to embrace it was blindness and imbecility, you know, 1859. And then I, yeah, so I mean, and then I found this amazing thing about uh, the, the, the Magica Laterna in, in Belgium. It was studied in the beginning of the 1800s, the, the first PowerPoint, which was 100 years ago, and how it influenced, you know, teachers, the pressure on top to conform, you know, from a frontal teaching in, uh, strategy to a, you know, in, um, showing teaching. Oh, it's tablets to pens, it's, uh, or to, to quills, quills to pencils, pencils to ballpoints, um, and, and so... And back to tablets. Yeah, yes, <laughs> and then exactly. ca calculators, Google search, Wikipedia. I mean, it does, but, but like I said, um, I'm, I don't want to, to throw it in that mix too quickly, because it could be that we are, that it really is um, even bigger development that, that maybe those epochs, as, as we say. Yeah, I think um, the thing I'm thinking of as you're talking is earlier the year that w there was um, a publication in The Conversation, an article by McKenna and colleagues, in which they um, made the claim that ChatGPT 
and I assume it's cousin's bud being and all the rest, um, is really asking questions about our assessment. It's giving us another opportunity. COVID gave us one opportunity and we quickly returned to what was normal. Um, and this is yet another opportunity. I mean, um, if we look back over the ages, um, a lot of things have changed, but education hasn't changed much. And maybe um, I tend to align with you. I'm thinking, you know, we've gone through all these things and we've gone through all these cycles. But then there's a part of me that also thinks maybe the world of work is fundamentally changing. And some things which um, would not we would never have considered now becomes possibilities. Um, and maybe it's, you know, that reimagining assessment. I think the question that you raised, um, and which we're not going to answer here, which links in with the McKenna article, is the why. That's the question we seldom ask about assessment. We assume that that question is answered um, and that our reasons are intact and in place. But this is a great time for us to ask those questions again. Yes, why are we assessing? Why are we teaching? What are we doing as higher education? Yeah, Beatrice, thank you so much. Unfortunately, our time is up for now. It's been a huge pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of food for thought shared. And um, yeah, let's let's keep on uh, keeping the conversations going and co-create in that sense and you know, be open to rethink our assessment. It's been uh, wonderful chatting with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And good luck with the rest of your PhD. Thank you so much.